Good morning and welcome everyone. It's uh, great to have you with us this morning. Uh, I think uh, we can all say that summer is in full swing and certainly the, the heat is on and it looks like it's going to be another warm uh, week and weekend. But we're glad you're with us and as I've mentioned before, we always appreciate your feedback on the issues that uh, we all, you all, want to know more about and the Power Hour topics reflect that each month. So today's lineup is really no exception. Uh, our chamber here represents around 1,400 members throughout the region, and finding a qualified workforce remains the number one challenge. Tom Hens, our Vice President of Public Policy and Small Business, leads the charge for us on finding creative solutions and bringing our community together to help find that workforce. You might not know that Beaufort County is home to over 10,000 active service members and 29,000 veterans. We've partnered with the U.S. Chamber of Commerce on their Hiring Our Heroes initiative, as well as working with the transitioning services, service members and their families through the SkillBridge program to civilian life. So here today to uh, tell us more about it is a gentleman we're proud to be working with. Uh, he's retired U.S. Army Major General William Grimsley. General Grimsley served as a highly decorated combat leader, earning the Silver Star for, for his valor and bravery. Uh, his military career led to a stint at the Pentagon, where he was uh, on September 11th of 2001. He was also appointed by Governor McMaster to serve as South Carolina's first Secretary of Veterans Affairs. And since his retirement, he continues to help active duty military personnel and their families transition to those post-military careers. We're proud to partner with you on this initiative, General Grimsley. And before I turn it off, turn it over to you, I'd be remiss if I didn't say thank you on behalf of all of our members, our community, uh, those listening today for your service and your family's service to our country. We're delighted to have you with us today and we're looking forward to uh, hearing more about what you're doing and what we're doing and how we're partnering together. Well, thank you, sir, and uh, good morning. I hope everybody can hear me all right. My name is Will Grimsley, I'm Beaufort County resident. I live in the other end of the county. I can get to you about 20 minutes by boat and about an hour and 20 minutes by car. Um, but uh, very happy to be here today and really thank you for this opportunity. I'm gonna share a screen here and talk with you briefly about some things and including SkillBridge. And then I'm gonna leave my contact info at the end so if people have questions or would like a copy of the presentation, Kelly can get it to you, but I'm happy to talk anytime. So let me see if I can pull this off here. Okay, so today I'd like to talk a little bit about how we can work together. Uh, that's chambers and businesses, employers across the low country, and certainly uh, governmental organizations, our military, the three active duty installations we have here. Of course, we've got a ton of reserve component, National Guard as well uh, here in the Beaufort County area. So how can we help really enable the the transition of our military, and, and although we didn't mention them, this also includes family members. So roughly 60% of the force is married or partnered. So when you look at 10,000 active duty, there's about another 6,000 plus thereabout spouses that, that come with that service member. Add kids in and you build to see how this goes. So how can we work together to do this? And the, the answer is there's a wide variety of ways. So uh, Dave Roselle, who used to work for me when I was Secretary of Veterans Affairs is on here as well. And we have a very robust Department of Veterans Affairs in South Carolina, a state level that I had the privilege to run for three years. 
until March when I retired. And on that website, which is here listed, there are a series of links, a veteran, veteran hiring toolkit, which tells you a little bit about veterans and how to perhaps do it and some things you might wanna consider in your particular business. A military skills translator, you know, we're terrible about telling you what we did in service and how that translates to what your business might or might not need. Now that helps you there. The My Next Move for Veterans talks about that and, and then more. And then we started, and Dave has continued a great uh, veteran-friendly employer recognition program where your business can earn recognition for the great work you already do for our veterans and their family members and gain some recognition that you could post on your website, put in your window or your storefront if you're a brick and mortar kind of place. And, and just it's just a nice thing to do. So, and we appreciate it. And we'd like to highlight this. You know, we're really all about commerce. That's the strength of the nation. Um, so we want to be able to support it. And then our three federal partners, or four count the Department of Defense, the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs has a very robust work. The U.S. Department of Labor actually runs a lot and provides a lot of federal money to the Veteran Transition Program, and they do a lot of work there. And of course, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, which Bill already mentioned, and they're a great partner in the Hiring Our Heroes Program, and that translates into what the Department of Defense is doing, with, which is SkillBridge. We're going to talk a little bit more in some detail about that. And it's working nationally for employers that are new to military talent efforts. This is a really tremendous program. <laughs> in fact, it's so great that DOD has also uh, this week suspended the addition of any new private employer members. So think of a private corporation or business. And it's because it's become so overwhelmingly popular, they're having to retool the website and the procedure to be more streamlined, which is a good thing. That, however, does not preclude any of y'all from using SkillBridge and bringing great military talent into your workforce. And we're gonna show you how to do that here through the third party facilitator. So with SkillBridge, it's a chance for uh, people like me and, and others, regardless of how many years they've been in service, to work and learn a civilian career area. It gives you, industry partners, the opportunity to access and leverage us. Um, this is a highly trained, motivated workforce. We know how to get up in the morning. We know how to do things. We know how to form teams. We know how to lead. We know how to follow. And, and I guess a real strength that we often forget is we're used, used to, from the first day of our lives in uniform, to work with diverse talent. We come from a wide variety of backgrounds. And inevitably, you join a team with people you've never met before who come from where you probably didn't come from or have a different education level or a different background or experience. And we come together, we form teams, and we solve problems in really interesting, challenging, complex environments under adverse conditions routinely. And, and that's a strength regardless of the specialty. Um, I was an infantry officer, um, but logisticians, cyber people, signaliers, artillery uh, soldiers, um, service members, pilots, we all bring competencies. And, and so it's important to pull all this together and figure out how we can use our skill sets to leverage your business or, or leverage on behalf of your business. Uh, SkillBridge allows us to do this for up to 180 days with no financial impact to you. So we would continue to draw our full pay and allowances. We're on temporary detail away to your business. And so you don't pay anything, no salary, no compensation. All you're doing is providing an opportunity to live and work in your business and gain real world training and experience in, in your field. And there's no requirement for you to offer a job at the end of it. A lot of people do offer jobs. I'll tell you a brief story here. I have two close personal friends. They're former subordinates actually. Both are retired army sergeants major. So senior enlisted, the senior enlisted rank in the army. 
One was an intelligence NCO and one was a cook. I knew her, she, she's the cook. I knew Kara Rudder as a cook when she was a young enlisted soldier in the Pentagon, my second tour there, not the 9-11 tour, but the second tour there. And she worked in the Secretary of Defense's mess when I was the Secretary of Defense's military assistant. And I met her and you know we were there about a year or so and a half together and she was the only soldier. So I paid a lot of attention to try and help you know guide her through as a young enlisted soldier. And then I left onto my world and she left onto her world. And we didn't regain contact until three or four years ago when I was appointed to be the Secretary of uh, Veterans Affairs. She contacted me and said, hey, congratulations. By the way, I live in South Carolina. She and her husband both used SkillBridge, both in different companies from different places. They took the 180 days. They learned payroll. They learned marketing. They learned communications. They learned how to read a PL. and um, They learned how to do a lot of work and in a lot of ways. And they and both of them were offered jobs in their companies and they both turned them down. They've taken their skills and they've created their own agribusiness with including agritourism. They use they run a skill bridge program for transitioning service members who wanna get involved in agriculture in South Carolina. There are about 5,000 farms that are led by veterans in South Carolina. And they run a, a boots to boots boot camp for the agribusiness and agritourism business. And they're both PhD candidates at Clemson. That's the value of SkillBridge. And, and it was no impact anything, and they provided six months of great duty to these companies they work for. So we have a real opportunity here to, to gain some symbiotic relationship uh, through this program that DOD finances. Now, why start here? Well, it's congressionally authorized. It aligns each to your workforce needs. No dedicated resourcing other than providing a space to come and walk into, and perhaps maybe where to find a cup of coffee in the morning. Um, it gives a very good opportunity to gain value from both sides and to evaluate military talent and for a, a service member to, to, to evaluate what works or doesn't work in the civilian world and, and bring those skill sets together. And then in our case here and in, in, in for your chamber, especially and across South Carolina, that we have these third party facilitators. So it doesn't require you to have a, your own dedicated skill bridge person. And, and it's like anything else in DOD, it can be pretty mind numbing and cumbersome. Um, but it really gives you the heavy lifting and just-in-time learning for interest, that's JIT because we have to use an acronym, for interested employers. And, and so in this case, it's the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and the Hiring Our Heroes program that's going to do this for you if you choose to use it. <clears throat> Eventually, and I've talked to Bob Morgan about this a couple of times, we would like to get our own inside South Carolina and maybe the South Carolina Chamber would be a good one to do. Um, it's, bigger, it's a bigger requirement than the department that, that I led. Um, for them to do, but the South Carolina Chamber could probably do this. Several of our larger corporations have skill bridge coordinators within their HR. Lockheed, uh, some of the defense contractors, you might imagine, Lockheed, Boeing, uh, several others. Michelin, I think, has one. So there are some already in South Carolina, but, but those are big corporations. What we're talking about here in the Hilton Head Bluffton Chamber and, and in most cities around South Carolina, using the Hiring Our Heroes or a third-party facilitator is the way to go. And so this is from the easiest to the hardest, as we said, we're asking you and thanks to the chamber, thank you for doing this. Serve as an advocate for SkillBridge awareness and host an info session. This is a really great program. Um, and we quite frankly, up to a couple of years ago, it's been around about 10 or 11 years now, we haven't taken as good advantage of it as possible. Um, and I'll tell you from the uniform side, the uniform commanders and senior enlist leaders are often, the, sometimes, <clears throat> often uh, the biggest a roadblock to getting this done because guys like me and you're in command, you don't want to let your skill go, you know, for 180 days, you want to use them and, and all that talent. 
as much as you can. But but now that I've <laughs> now that I've gone to the other side, I I now see the light. I've had an epiphany because we spend millions of dollars bringing people into service, recruiting, retaining, educating, training over a course of life, but we don't spend nearly enough on the transition out. And this is a way to to really do that back. So we're working hard with the active duty installations to to make sure they really understand this and. And I think across our eight active duty installations in South Carolina, we've gotten a lot better at it. And certainly Marine Corps Air Station Beaufort, uh, Marine Corps Recruit Depot Paris Island and U.S. Naval Hospital Beaufort, clearly their senior leadership clearly understand the power of this. So the second is collaborate with a strong DOD authorized skill bridge facilitator. In this case, we're talking about hiring our heroes at the U.S. Chamber until we get more. And the third is, you know, this is the hard part and we'll get to work on this to find a couple more in South Carolina so we can spread the wealth a little bit of the hard work for the facilitation of this. But what we're asking is that in your place of work, if you've got any need for strong, motivated, disciplined, fit, well-trained, well-educated, and really great teammate kind of employees, and you want to get them a taste of what your work does and maybe keep them here to be full-time employees in Beaufort County or certainly narrow it down to Hilton Head and Bluffton, or the surrounding areas, uh, think about using SkillBridge and think about the opportunity to really pile on here. And, and even if you don't choose to hire them or they choose not to come into your place of employment, use them for six months or, or less and, and see what they provide. And maybe we can at least keep them and their families in our, in our area. And that just strengthens the, the fabric of society in my personal opinion. And so um, 50 Strong is one of our partners. This is a nonprofit. If you're familiar with the Pat Tillman story, a uh, great NFL football player, Arizona Cardinals, who was killed in action. Yeah, Ranger uh, enlisted as a Ranger. He and his brother enlisted together. Well, Pat Tillman's sister-in-law, Candy, and her husband, who's Pat's brother, they started 50 Strong to really get after veteran, trans veteran and ser service member veteran and their family transition and using SkillBridge as the driver. And, and Candy, is a, she's a hardcore proselytizing disciple. Um, she helped me put this presentation together, and she's a national-level advocate for this. And, and a great friend. And so this is what we're all about. 50 strong employers, pathways, and military talent. That's what it's really all about. And if you need to find me, that's me. I go by Will. That's my personal email, and that's my personal cell phone number. And when it comes to veterans and their family members, service members and their family members, I'm all in 24-7, 365, anytime. And absent that, if you don't want to talk to me, which is okay, <laughs> okay as well, go to the SCDVA website, leverage the, all the resources that are there. There's much more than I listed, but that's a wealth of talent and a wealth of information there that can really help you in the employment of this great workforce on behalf of our nation, on behalf of our state, and certainly on behalf of the beautiful low country where we all live and work. So thank you. And I'm open to questions if you want to do that. All right, General Grimsley, thank you so much for that. Uh, very, very informative and certainly um, needed very much so in, in South Carolina as well as Beaufort County. Our first question is coming from Renee, and Renee is asking, in your experience, what's the biggest stumbling block for those leaving the military and transitioning to civilian life? Um, okay, well, it can be answered in a lot of different ways, Renee, and that's a great question. The first is, most of us often don't know what we want to do when we leave service. I was in the Army for 33 years, and you would think I would have had the easiest transition in the world because I essentially had from great retirement and, you know, my pay and benefits and, you know, the defined benefit that I earned is what we call retirement pay and insurance and a house and a great family and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I, quite frankly, although I had an idea what I wanted to do, 
I sort of wandered around the desert for a little bit. Um, I consulted, I ran a nonprofit, I was Secretary of Veterans Affairs, and now I'm back in the consulting business a little bit as a sort of semi-retired for the second or third time um, guy over here in, in on Harbor Island. Um, and, and so we don't often know exactly what we want to do. What we do generally know is where we want to be, at least the beginnings of it. Um, and so that's part of it. The second is we're looking for a purpose, most of us. We're looking for a place where we fit in, where we can be part of a team, just like we were in the military, but for a sense of purpose. And oftentimes it's giving back. Oftentimes it's really just contributing to whatever organization we, we choose to join and, and then you know, really bring our talents to bear. And, and then the third big stumbling block for a lot of us is we don't translate our skills very well. I was an infantryman. That means I carried a rucksack, shot a rifle, I know how to lead guys, I know how to build teams. Um, but but I, I do know how to do a lot more things than that. And so does a private, you know, or, or a young sergeant, or, you know, Marine sergeant when he gets out of whatever his specialty or her specialty is. We all know how to do certain things. We just have a, a, a challenge translating our skill set into what you might need. I would ask that for y'all, when you're thinking about hiring veterans or military or and their family members, maybe take a step back and look at the broader picture. And uh, unless it's a really technical specific skill, look more broadly at all of the other things that we do know how to do. And if you're in a young enlisted service member for four or five years, you've by definition already been well-trained and educated. You know how to pass physical training. You, you know, you've been to a at least a primary leadership course. You've been in charge of your peers. So the toughest thing to do is be in charge of your buddies. You've already done all of that. And, and you've got a whole bunch of other things just by virtue of day-to-day -day business in the military. So take a step back and help them try and translate their own skills to, uh, to what it is you might need and take a broad view of it. Most of us are pretty trainable to doing something new too. Um, so I think those are probably the, the stumbling blocks, uh, if you will. Help us figure out what we want to do, where we want to do it. Give us a sense of purpose. And then look for other ways that we can contribute to your team. We like being part of a team, by the way. All right. Thank you. Our next, uh, first of all, a comment, I guess. And then a question is coming from Tim. And Tim is saying what a phenomenal opportunity this is. And uh, he appreciates your efforts with it. And then is also asking what is step number one and step number two in getting this process moving for his business? Sure. So step one is commit to it. So Tim, if you're already in, cool. Thank you. We appreciate that. Um, step two is, and, and Tom, I'm not going to speak for you, but I think you've already got the beginnings of the packet for the hiring our heroes. Um, if you're willing to be a, a, a skill bridge hirer, it's not really a word, a person, a company who chooses your skill bridge to hire, um, then I would contact the chamber and then start the work to use the third party facilitator. And, and make sure that you're lined in with them because that you do register with them to be an authorized user, hire person or company who hires, and, and then begin to advertise. And you can advertise through the South Carolina department. You can advertise through the uh, transition assistance programs across. But if you're really looking for veterans, start to post on every job board you can find that, that you're looking and put it on your own website that you're a skill bridge um, provider. And then, you know, we can, and we can all help, you know, a bunch of us know a bunch of people. So whatever your business is, Tim, I, I believe the chamber could probably do some marketing for you. Again, I'm not going to speak for them. Uh, but, 
but certainly there are plenty of people around here. But but step one is get your get your name and get your company logged in with the chamber and with the U.S. Chamber as your third party facilitator. And I'll leave it to Tom on the next part. All right, General, our next question is coming from Terry. And Terry is asking, what is the feedback you receive from businesses uh, transitioning service members? Yeah, all right. well, I can't give you a percentage, but the vast preponderance. So in my case, that's probably in the 95 percentile and higher. Uh, love bringing veterans aboard uh, because of the work ethic and, and because we are trainable. So generally speaking, when we get a good match, and, and by the way, we're not the be all to end all. We don't solve everybody's ills in workforce or workforce development. We're just part of the solution set. Our tech colleges, our universities, our high schools, and you know, other, other programs that, that bring great workers, apprenticeship programs that the Department of Commerce runs, there are lots of avenues to bring great workforce into South Carolina. But generally speaking, the feedback is we bring great skill, we bring great teamwork, we bring a strong discipline and work ethic to this. And, and most of us have lived and worked somewhere other than where we leave service, from where we leave service. So, I mean, I served all over the world and in all of the United States. And by the way, I was an Army brat, so I grew up in this too. Um, so we bring some you know, pretty interesting experience life experience to this too. And the feedback is generally positive. And, and when a company chooses to go the next step, which is create a veteran support organization with inside their company, it can be one or two people, or it can be bigger. When they get uh, their workforce involved in other veteran organizations, whether it's veteran service organizations like the American Legion of VFW or the newer ones, the Iraq Afghanistan veterans or others, programs that the South Carolina department runs like the Palmetto Pathfinder, program, which is a near peer support um, group. Several companies in South Carolina have veteran organizations within their company that are also part of Pathfinder and things that the department oversees and provides training for. Then they bring their families aboard. So then you're almost employing the family, if you will, well, sometimes literally employing the family. Um, but figuratively, when you bring a spouse and then kids into your workforce, it, you really start to build some strong connective tissue. And that's the feedback we get. Um, you know, you take a, you take an enlisted, you know, some a kid who enlisted at 18 into any of the service, any of the six services or any component, quite frankly, they're eligible for full retirement at 20 years. So if you're in the army, for example, and you're a private and you come in at 18, go to your basic training, wherever that is, whatever your specialty is, and you choose to get out at 20 years, you're probably a staff sergeant or a sergeant first class. You've been in charge of anywhere from 10 to 40 soldiers in your organization. You've got a clearance, you've been to three or four different schools, you know how to do a lot of things, you might speak a language, you can certainly translate a lot of your skill sets into something else. And you're very likely, as I said, three-fifths of us are gonna be married and partnered, with, likely with kids. And you're gonna bring all of that into a community, into an organization, a business, into a local community, a church, temple, or, or whatever, civic clubs, you know, little league, whatever it is. And you start to see how that builds the fabric of the local community and then a lot of times, if it's the right kind of community, like where we all live, they're going to stay there. They're going to go to TCL or they're going to go to USCB or, or somewhere like that. And, and then that's going to continue to perpetuate over time. I mean, there, there's a reason why we have almost 30,000 veterans in Beaufort County. Um, and it's because there's a great, there's, it's a great way of life down here. And, and so I, I think that's the feedback that we generally get is, is we provide something to most companies and the companies who embrace this 
provide a lot more back to back to us. All right, General, thank you. The uh, we've had several other questions that you've already answered, but we have one last question as we're running tight on time here. And that last question is coming from Angie. And Angie is as asking, how does the program assist military spouses? Yeah, so SkillBridge um, can be used for spouses as well. Obviously, there's not a pay and allowance thing unless they're on active duty. But the Hiring Our Heroes program that the U.S. Chamber runs also includes military spouses. My wife was a professional uh, HR person, for example. We moved 22 times. Well, she moved 18 times in 33 years. And that doesn't count deployments and some moves that where she stayed in one place. She's got a master's in HR. Um, she was a vice president for HR for a software development company in Texas. She was a federal contractor, a variety of other things. But every time we picked up and moved, when she, when she did move, many cases, she had to start over again. And our spouses often get the short shrift here. And so this is a real opportunity to not only give back to the veteran, but his or her family members as well, and really bring them aboard and quite frankly, reward them for their service. It's just as demanding. Um, and, and so hiring our heroes broadens the perspective, opens the aperture, if you will, not just the service member, but his or her spouse as well. And so bringing them aboard and then taking advantage of what in South Carolina has already uh, streamlined a lot in terms of the licensure things, where you have that requirement through what labor licensing regulation does for the state. And uh, there's a new federal law that eases the licensure as well, um, that for those things that require a specific licensure certificate, there are, there are um, opportunities to take advantage of, of things that the state and the federal government have done to ease that transition as well. So I would, uh, I would add, thank you, first of all, Terry, for the question, but, but I would advocate that you really look hard when you think of a veteran, think of his or her family member as well. And, and may, if you don't have the opportunity to hire them, maybe somebody else you know does, if they're looking for a job. General, it's been terrific being with you this morning. Uh, thank you so much for your input, your presentation, and also leading this, this valuable program uh, to the business community, as well as our, uh, our veterans and, and those looking to uh, transition. We appreciate that, we appreciate you. And uh, once again, thank you to you and your family for what you all have done for our country. Thank you, sir. Please contact me anytime. We will. Thanks again. All right, General Grimsley. We'll be moving on now and uh, looking to, we all know how inflation has impacted uh, every sector of the economy. You know, it's not just at the grocery store, at the, not just at the gas pump also. But it's insurance premiums as well. They're, they're on the rise, unfortunately. And um, S&P Global Intelligence notes that the average increase in homeowners insurance is expected to be over 7% this year. I think our next speaker might think that might be a, a good number. We'll see what he has to say. Uh, also, that number was being the average commercial insurance increase was up 6% in Q1 and that's up from 5% averages across in Q4 last year. So we know that many have seen a dramatic rise in, in, in the uh, rates. And today, um, in the first of really an ongoing series of our informative speakers on this topic, we'll be disseminating information via Power Hour, as well as through our pop popular podcast series. And here to tell us what's happening in insurance and why is the managing executive of McGriff Insurance Services, Steve Stauffer. Steve has spent his entire career in the insurance industry, 
and is here to talk about what's happening and how it impacts you. Steve, great to see you, and uh, thanks for joining us this morning. Thanks, Bill. You got me okay? You hear me? You do. Very good. Yeah, I wish, um, I'm going to share my screen here, that we could say those were the kind of uh, rate increases we were seeing down here in um, the coastal market. Unfortunately, I mean, I'd be clicking my heels and doing a backflip, but we're seeing much higher rate increases here. And I thought what I'd do is kind of go into why it's like this. And, uh, and then uh, there's questions, obviously take some questions. Um, basically, we're in, in insurance, you have an insurance cycle. It goes from soft market to hard market and back again. And the time between the hard market, typically if you are insurance your whole career like I've been, you may see a couple of hard markets in your lifetime. The rest of the time it's in between and the soft market can be much more prevalent. But um, we're in a hard market right now. And this is the work, it's not just a hard market, it's being described as a generational type hard market. So when you talk about a hard market, that's when there's a high demand for uh, insurance little appetite for people that want to insure it and the rates just skyrocket out of control and unfortunately well fortunately because we all love living in here living here we live in a coastal market which gets hit worse than some other parts of the country and bill mentioned um inflation one of the things you got to remember too it, even if we haven't had all these disasters and stuff we've had over the last few years inflation was lagging a little bit behind the insurance industry uh, it was going to catch up this year regardless. So we probably would have seen 10 to 15% rate increases um, in inflation, uh, regardless of what we're seeing with regular rate increases due to all the, the money that's been lost in the market. So that's taken a big toll. And the other thing is there's the social inflation, which is hard to measure. Um, we've become a much more litigious society over the last five to 10 years. And you you don't really know how drawn out legal proceedings are. Um, people are getting larger judgments uh, in insurance type claim situations. So all that's kind of played into it, even before you take out all the storms and everything we've had across the country and the natural disasters we've had. And so when you talk about that, I'm gonna talk about like a past market and I've got this on the screen. Um, when you have a soft market, um, Insurance is available everywhere. Rates are stable or falling because everybody wants to get in and write, that sort of thing. And we've had decades from decades. We last were in a soft market probably about 15, 16. And uh, materials and labor costs are lower in a, in a hard market. Uh, there's plenty of capacity. Uh, large carriers retention is maintained in-house, which means we have reduced layer coverage. So that's kind of a soft market where we were probably seven, eight years ago. Now, when you talk about the present market, and I've got it on the screen, cat losses have mounted. Uh, the, there's layered coverage, which I'll talk about in a second, which you used to not have, have to deal with, <clears throat> excuse me, with as much. And the valuations have got skyrocketed through the roof uh, for your home, your business. I'm talking about specifically more property values, obviously, now. So the carriers charge less for higher layers of coverage, resulting in less capacity avail available for the market. And let me, let me talk about that for a minute when we talk about uh, capacity and layering and stuff. Say you had a, a, and this can apply in personal lines as well, but I'm a little bit more on the commercial side. But say you had a $20 million building on Hilton Head uh, 
in years past, you could get one carrier to bite down on that whole 20 million, give you great coverages from a wind deductible standpoint, um, different things like that. Due to the change in the market over the last number of years, that carrier is not gonna wanna bite down on that whole $20 million. So what we have to do as, as agents, and I wanna say there's a lot of great agents in Hilton Head and Bluffton, um, you have to layer it up. So you may get somebody to take the first 5 million, then you get somebody else to take the next 3 million and somebody else to take the next 5 million and so forth till you reach that 20 million capacity. That drives the rate significantly up. So instead of having somebody bite down on that whole 20 million, you're paying X amount for this, X amount for that, X amount for that, X amount for that. And down here, we're seeing 100, 200% rate increases on property. Uh, we have a lot of older frame buildings on Hilton Head, um, which are in good shape, but those are getting hit hardest. And there's really not a lot you can do about it. One of the things they're really trying to, um, to look at is uh, uh, your valuation because they wanna make sure your, your building is keeping up with inflation and, and uh, the cost of, of paying a claim or rebuilding your, your, your building or whatever. So you're seeing on top of these rate increases, carriers are really trying to bump the values way up. So if you haven't had your building uh, done evaluation in the past, they're, they're forcing it now. So a lot of times you're getting hit by double, double barrel stuff or triple barrel and you're getting hit by inflation your rates uh, going up and then your, your building getting increased. And on top of that, they're looking at any reason to get off of something. It's got almost be, I don't wanna say pristine, but if your roof is much older and you hadn't replaced it in a while, they're gonna, they're, you're gonna get gigged on that. So um, there's a lot of things that factor into it. And I, I wanna show, this is kind of what we've been dealing with from a disaster standpoint since 16. 16 was a, soft, was a soft market. The rates were fine. We had plenty of places to go, plenty of competition among agents, all that kind of stuff. 17 started a run of really a number of years, which we're still in. You can see it was basically the worst year on record, 306 billion. This is for uh, disasters globally. 2018, the market began to harden a little bit. We started seeing restricted capacity, but we were still okay. We were still able to get things handled and all that kind of stuff. But you can see some of the different disasters we had during those years. 19, social inflation started, which I mentioned earlier with the society being more litigious, people suing each other, uh, higher judgments being awarded. And then of course, everybody knows what happened in 20, the pandemic hits. Um, it was on top of that, it was the most active storm season up at that point, $22 billion, $22 billion events. Going to another uh, 21, another season, big disasters, uh, winter storms. Um, I think that was the year we had the big freeze in Texas. And then 22, of course, everybody knows about Ian. We had, uh, I think it was um, 15 separate billion dollar events in 22 capped off by Ian, which we've paid out. I think in the industry's paid out between 70 and $80 billion on that. Now, if you include uninsured um, risks, it was probably would have been closer to $120 billion. So all this is factored into why we've kind of hit this perfect storm, no, ton, no pun intended this year on, on, and everybody's getting hammered with these increases, myself included, my, my homeowners went dramatically up and, um, Again, it's a, it's, a, it's a product of the, the disasters, the inflation, the shrinking market. Nobody wants to um, get in it right now. Now, one thing I will say, the insurance industry can't stand prosperity. Uh, 
it's, it'll be a matter of time. I can't tell you when, where it'll be a race back down the, down the ladder to zero is what I used, used to call it. But um, it's not going to change anytime soon. I, I get this question a lot. Well, when do you think, and I get pushed drug aside in grocery stores, uh, lunches, my son's birthday party by different people that we insure asking me what's going on. But um, I think we're in this for at least two to three years. I don't, I don't think we'll see the dramatic increases that we saw, saw this year. I can't promise that. Nobody can. We don't, what we really need is a non-active hurricane season here, and we need things to calm down a little bit. We, you saw that stream of bad years we've had. We, we, don't, we need a couple of years where, where we don't have those. Uh, the other thing is, um, you know, everybody's like competition. Well, I'll just bring in, you know, let me get the best three agents I know down here and, and uh, let them see and get me the most competitive quote on what I have. Well, with the market being so limited now in capacity, most of your agents have the same markets. And if you bring them all in, it's going to kind of muddy up the water to where it'll block potential areas they can go to get the best coverage and the best price for you. So you're better off interviewing your broker and, and deciding, well, I, I want to go with him I, or her or whatever. That way they can have access to everything and get you the, the best price. So it's not just a case of an open market where you can just go out and let three people go out and quote. Um, a second question, another question I get other than how long do I think this will last is why Hilton Head? We haven't had a storm since really Matthew. And, uh, you know, we don't get hit much here. We're, 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 you know, we're kind of tucked in a little cranny, nook and cranny here on the coast of South Carolina. Well, it doesn't matter. This is a global market. So when you have an Ian hit down in Florida and you have a, um, a wildfire disasters out in California or the freeze in Texas or hail, big hailstorms in the Midwest, we're all supple supplementing each other for that. So it's very difficult. These are, this is probably the hardest year I've ever had in insurance. And I've been, like I said, doing this 35 plus years, trying to explain to people why their rates are going up so much. Um, it, it's, I, again, I don't see it. No, I don't see any signs of it softening anytime soon. Uh, one final thing before we can go to some questions is, um, I do feel with the rates so high, and this is where you guys start seeing the things turn, with the rates so high, um, you're gonna start seeing people gradually start getting back in again because they think they can get their rate now, which will free up a little bit more capacity, hopefully, which eventually will drive market conditions down because people will start um, wanting to gain market share again. Normally a hard market will last a year or two. This one's probably gonna last three. Uh, could, be, could be more, could be less, depending on what happens. But I think, um, we're kind of in this for the long haul, and uh, it's just a it's just a result of everything coming home to roost over the last four or five years between economics, natural disasters, social inflation, and we live in a beautiful place, but it's susceptible to storms. So, Bill, with that, I'll, are there any questions or anything else you want me to uh, cover? Steve, thank you. That was very informative, and there are questions. Uh, some of them you've already answered, but there are others that you haven't. So the first one is coming from Paul. And Paul is asking, if you don't agree with your valuation, what recourse do homeowners have? Paul, that's a good question. Um, unfortunately, you don't have a lot because the carrier is going to look at your valuation and based on what he's seeing too with your construction, your, your edge of your roof and all that, I mean, 
they're pretty much, they held all the leverage now. Uh, they're going to hold your feet to the fire and basically, I don't want to say strong arm you, but they, they have to get their money now for what they think your, your building or your homeowners is worth. And there's really, really not a whole lot you can do about it right now. Sorry, unfortunately. All right. Thank you for that answer. Our next question is coming from Mark. And Mark is asking, my policy has increased 110%, but the biggest challenge was securing liability coverage for pools without fences. My POA does not permit, permit fences. Uh, what can I do in this case? Yeah, I'm in that same situation. Um, I live in Hilton Head Plantation. I have an unfenced pool, but I'm, I was grandfathered into my old policy. But that's another case where they were a lot more lenient on that in uh, years past and uh, carriers were, but now they're looking at every single thing they can to make sure they're covered. Um, it, I know with the carriers we deal with, if you can provide a copy with most of them, I don't know who you're obviously you're with, and this would be a, a question when you go ask your agent, but if you're with a POA that does not allow it, typically if you can get a copy of that in the bylaws or whatever and show that to, the, uh, to your carrier, sometimes they'll make an exception because you're not allowed to have it. I know in, 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 in Hilton Head Plantation, it's a little ambiguous. It doesn't say, it basically almost says it's if your insurance carrier requires it, you can, will allow it within the architectural guidelines. So you really need to get a copy of the bylaws, talk to your POA guy over at, the, uh, at your local POA for your, for your neighborhood and, and see exactly what it says in there and provide that to your agent to give to the carrier that's, that's stating that. All right, Steve, thank you. And uh, next question is coming from Victor. And Victor is asking, what advice do you have for homeowners and businesses looking to keep costs down for insurance? Uh, I get that question a lot too. Um, obviously, make sure your property is maintained. Um, unfortunately, right now, like I said, if you're, if you're on an older, and we do some condos and a lot of POAs, but if you're in an older build, older frame building, um, everything's modeled now. It's, it, it, you know, they run it through, we have rely too much on computers in my opinion, but they run everything through a modeling system. And if, you're, if your uh, property doesn't model well because of its age of construction, its age and its construction type and how old its roof, your roof is, you, there's not a lot you can do. Um, uh, sometimes you can, you know, your agent should be going out to market to make sure, you know, they've covered all your bases, which most, like I said, we have a lot of really good agents down here. They know what they're doing. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I wish I couldn't say there's not a lot. I, I hate to say there's just not a lot you can do, but the market we're in right now, like I said, this is a generational type market. It's never been this bad. And it's, and it's something that we're just going to have to kind of fight our way through for the next couple of years. All right, Steve, thank you for that. And our last question for you this morning is coming from Susan. And Susan is, is saying and then asking, we're seeing insurance companies pulling out of states like California. Do you foresee that happening in South Carolina? We've already had that happen, some, particularly in the purse lines market, because a lot of carriers were based out of Florida and Ian pretty, pretty much put them under. So um, we're seeing it. Yeah, when I talk about uh, carriers pulling out, a lot of them not, are not pulling out of the state. Some of them are, 
but a lot of them are just saying we're not writing anymore right now. We're sitting on what we have, or we're going to not renew what we have until the market changes. Then we'll get more aggressive again. Again, the definition of a hard market: uh, strong demand, not a lot of capacity, not a lot of options. So yeah, we've already seen that a lot happen. But again, we cannot stay in prosperity. I've been doing this a long time. It's only a matter of time that we're going to start going the other way, and and it'll go back down. But when that is. I don't know. Steve, we know you don't have that crystal ball, uh, although we do appreciate you being with us today and very informative, great input. And um, we'll look forward to, to seeing you and hearing you down the road. Yeah, no problem, Bill. Anything I can do to help and you can, you can feel free to share this presentation. It's not proprietary we'll, if anybody wants we'll, to. We will post it um, just to, just a couple minutes. All right, Steve, All thanks right, again for being with thanks. us. Steve Stauffer with Griff Insurance. We're going to transition now to a subject maybe a little bit more positive or a lot more positive, I guess I probably should say, and we're going to talk about Bluffton. We know that uh, Bluffton is a town that's rich in history and one that believes believe strongly in protecting and preserving uh, it for future generations. And here to give us an update on the restoration project happening in Bluffton and their Wright Family Park and their uh, historic designations, two of those that they've just, uh, that, that they currently have is an architectural historian, author, lecturer, and uh, on staff with the town of Bluffton. And uh, Glenn, Glenn Umberger, we're glad to have you with us this morning and we look forward to hearing your update. Thank you, it's a real pleasure to be with you all this morning. Um, Bluffton has a lot of historic resources. Um, we have a large historic district, about one square mile, uh, featuring 86 contributing resources. Um, we have a lot going on in Bluffton, and you probably notice if you've driven through here recently. Um, one of our big projects right now is the Squire Pope Carriage House at the Wright Family Park. Um, this structure actually started out its life as three individual outbuildings prior to the U.S. Civil War uh, on the Squire Pope property. Um, after the war, they were assembled together into the current structure, um, incidentally, without an architect or an engineer involved, um, and served as a private residence for a number of years. Um, the town purchased the property. It's currently being rehabilitated um, into a new visitor center and office space for town staff upstairs. Um, you may have noticed a couple months ago, it was up on cribbing about six feet in the air. Um, that was a project that we were undertaking to um, put it on a new proper foundation. Um, previously, had sat just right on the dirt. Um, this will actually ensure that the property um, is stable and will live on for an, another 100 or so years. Um, so that's a, that's a project that I invite you to come check out and also to stay tuned. Um, more work is ongoing and we have about another year or so worth of construction before that property is open. Um, another thing that's really interesting and kind of exciting for us here in Bluffton is recently we've had two of our resources added to the Reconstruction Era National Historic Network. Um, you might wonder, what is that? Um, the network was actually established by an act of Congress in 2019. Um, it's a list of sites throughout the country that pertain to the Reconstruction era, um, which is a period in American history from about 1860 to about 1900. Um, widely misunderstood um, period of history and often not well studied. Um, the network is actually managed by the Reconstruction Era National Historical Park located in Buford. Um, if you've never visited their facility on Craven Street, I would highly encourage you to go see them. Um, the list is actually currently at 97 sites 
Um, these are sites that A, pertain to the reconstruction era um, that are either eligible or listed in the National Register of Historic Places and also pertain to um, the network um, or the era by either providing uh, opportunities for visitors to see them as a tourist site uh, or also for scholars to study what's happening or, or more about that um, era in history. Um, here in Bluffton, we've had two that were added in May. Um, the first one is the Campbell Chapel AME uh, Church on Boundary Street. Um, the building was actually initially constructed in 1853. Um, in 1874, following the U.S. Civil War, nine formerly enslaved members of that church uh, bought the building for $500 and created the Campbell Chapel AME. Um, the congregation's been on that site ever since, um, and it's a fantastic building. Um, that is slated for rehabilitation starting in the very near future. Plans have just been approved by our local Historic Preservation Commission, um, and we're very excited to see that rehabilitation of that building take place. Um, the second one that was added in May was the Garvin Garvey House um, in the Oyster Factory Park uh, at the foot of Wharf Street. Um, this uh, structure was built about 1870 um, by Friedman um, Cyrus Garvin. Um, on what had been the Baynard family property. Um, he didn't own the property at the time, but he later was able to purchase the property on which the house sits. Um, and it's the only remaining extant um, Friedman Cottage on the May River. Um, the town actually did a reconstruction of the building a few years ago. Um, and it's a wonderful opportunity for tourists and for locals to not only take advantage of the beautiful view from the front door, um, but also to learn about Mr. Garvey and his um, rise from, from slavery to being a freedman and being quite successful. Um, so that's a few of the highlights of what's going on in the town. Um, as the town's historic preservationist, I'm very busy. Um, all good things, a lot of things that are happening. Um, and um, I'm always available for questions, comments, telephone calls. Um, if you see me driving around on the town golf cart, please stop me and say hi. I'm always happy to talk to people. Glenn, thank you. We appreciate you being with us this morning. We have a few questions for you if you have time for those. Of course. All right. Thank you. Our first question is coming from Susan. And Susan is asking, what is the history behind the Seven Oaks Mansion on Calhoun Street? So uh, one of the challenges with, with dealing with the historic district um, anything built prior to the Civil War, we're not quite sure when it was built because um, records are scant. Um, but we do know that the house was built about the period of 1850, 1860, somewhere in there, maybe a little bit earlier, built by the, the Stewart family. Um, the Stewarts uh, in South Carolina were one of the wealthiest families. Um, this was their summer cottage. Um, and um, it served the, the family as their summer cottage for a number of years. Um, during the early 20th century, it was actually used as a boarding house um, for uh, business people and travelers coming through Bluffton needed a place to stay. Um, back in the day, we didn't have Hilton Garden Hotel, so they stayed um, there at Seven Oaks. Um, there is a story that goes uh, something along the lines of one night in room 13, um, there was apparently a dispute. Um, shots were fired from a gun. Someone was carried out in a pine box. Um, apparently, the bloodstains are still on the floor, though I have not been able to verify that part of the story yet. Um, so it has a rather interesting story. Um, some of it's 
probably myth, some of its lore, some of its fact. Um, it's, you know, if I had to pick one of my favorite buildings in town, that would probably be one of them. All right, sir. The uh, next question is coming from Julie. And Julie is asking, how did you become an architectural historian? Um, so um, long story short, um, I've always been interested in history. Um, I think I got bit by the history bug in second grade um, in Philadelphia. It was the bicentennial year. We were learning American history um, three miles from where it all happened. Um, and always interesting in, in architecture. Um, unfortunately, me and math do not have a great relationship, so I could not be an architect, um, but I could be a historian. Um, I actually received my master's in fine arts in architectural history from the Savannah College of Art and Design uh, just down the road in Savannah, Georgia. Um, so that's how I got my credentials for being an architectural historian. Um, many years of volunteering in various places to be tour guides, um, and studying buildings. Um, so that's the that's the short answer of, of how I um, became an architectural historian. All right, our last question is coming from Ben and Ben's asking, what do you think is the hidden gem of standing Bluffton history? The hidden gem, um, I think the hidden gem um, might actually have to be, um, the Squire Pope Carriage House, um, only because it's such a fascinating story of how the building actually survived um, since the 1850s, um, how it was a source of um, shelter for a family that after the war was destitute, um, to how it was modernized for 20th century living um, to now it's being recreated into a visitor center and office space for the public to enjoy. Um, when the, the building was actually up on its cribbing, um, I had the opportunity to walk under the building. It was the first time someone had touched that ground since the 1860s. Um, and it's remarkable that structure, it survived. It's a real survivor. Um, hurricanes, um, the Civil War, the burning of Bluffton in 1863, um, 20th century weather events, historical events, fires, et cetera, it's still standing. Um, and it's a real testament to not only um, the structure itself, but also to, you know, Bluffton. Um, we've been here since 1825. All right, Glenn, we're very fortunate to have you in the uh, position you're in with the town of Bluffton. We thank you for being with us this morning and we thank you for, uh, for what you're doing. Oh, sure, it's certainly my pleasure. And as a bonus, if you're interested in hearing more about the Bluffton history, check out our Chamber podcast interview with Glenn. Uh, you can check it out on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Mm -hmm. I want to thank everybody for joining us in this, this morning. I uh, look forward to getting back together on August 2nd. Uh, between then, uh, happy summer, stay cool, and I hope to see you soon. Thanks for being with us.